Okay. Before we begin then, let us all take a moment to pay homage to the Merciful One, the Undefeated, the Unvanquished One. the infinitely compassionate one, the perfect one in 10,000 world systems. He who was able to deliver the path to liberation, the path that has taken us, our forefathers, today us and in future, future generations for as long as his teaching prevails to achieve the ultimate bliss, unconditional happiness. We are gathered here to learn, study, understand and comprehend the truths that he unveiled with utmost compassion towards all sentient beings. Let us take a moment to pay homage to the Magnificent One. Namo tassa. Bhagavato Arehato Samma Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arehato Samma Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arehato Samma Sambuddhasa some new faces. What should I say? Good morning, marhaban, guten tag. All right, okay. Welcome. New faces, old faces, regular faces, irregular faces. Hmm? Some of you have irregular faces, like mine. We couldn't meet for two weeks. How did you fare? Okay? Good. We come here to learn about the Buddha, learn about the Dhamma, and learn about the Sangha. Learn what they represent. Absorb whatever they have to offer, anything that helps alleviate us from the human condition. Despite our differences, whatever those differences might be, because in the modern world, people celebrate differences. They celebrate Difference in complexion, race, creed, religion, gender. Here, we don't see all those differences because we look at the world from a very different lens. In fact, celebrating Acknowledging those differences has to be done nowadays, otherwise it is politically incorrect, you can find yourself in hot water. 
You have to be sensitive. Recently, I got the good opportunity to talk to someone who was helping us organize one of these talks to a new audience, a fresh audience. And I was quite surprised by some of the uh, suggestions, guidance, and good advice, all in good light, that was shared with us. It made me feel like I was living in a time capsule. I explained to the person that it's been about seven years since I ordained, and I haven't left the monastery for any longer than maybe at most a day. And even when I did, it was only for the purpose of delivering one of these talks. And even then, I was surrounded by people just like yourselves who have immersed themselves in the truths, the Dhamma that we preach, or perhaps in a temple, in another monastery. And I feel like the world has moved on so much in those few years. So much so that listening to this person share, you know, these were all tips, hints, good advice, suggestions about being culturally aware. It made me feel like when the rest of the world has moved on, I've kind of moved back into the Stone Age. <laughs> and perhaps it's time for me to discover fire or something. <laughs> or maybe invent the wheel. And while I was very grateful and very respectful to those sentiments, and because it was all given very good intention, and time and time again, this person profusely apologized in any case if they had offended. And I said, no, no, please, please don't. It's for you to teach me what the world is like, and for it's my duty to share with you what out of this world is like. So we have to meet somewhere in the middle so we can help each other out. Because to help people to jump into the sky, you have to first firmly place yourself on the ground, indeed. Even to rocket yourself into outer space, you have to take thrust by pushing down onto the ground. So if a rocket can't do that, then there's not a snowball's chance in hell that is going to get out into space. This explains why the Bodhisattva, the young prince, in his final birth, we are, the, 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 the stories say that he deliberately chose. Now, today I see that I interpret that in a different way. But I remember what my grandmother taught me as she struggled to feed me, running around the house. She was behind me, not I behind her. 
in case you wondered. How she taught me about the stories, uh, she taught me the stories of how the Bodhisattva, he chose the time, the place, the mother, the clan into which he was supposed to be born so that he could do a fine job of promoting, propagating and sharing with others the Dhamma. It is said that he realized in his birth as a Deva prior to becoming a human in his last birth that if he does not create for himself a decent, strong platform, then he wouldn't be able to do the service that he was able to. So, I understand that now. I really do. In fact, not just to another audience or to another culture, but I, th I suppose even if we were asked to travel the land again and share the truth, share the Dhamma with people who so-called are you know, similar to us in many ways than one, as in, even if you were to travel the country and start preaching to people, I think we're going to have a tough time <laughs> because you all have been with us for a long time and you have sort of become accustomed to the style of delivery, to what we have to say, right? And even things that other people might find offensive you take it very lightly because you understand that this is all meant with good intention. But having said that, you know, that is not an excuse. We, I finally explained to this person, you know, if we have to come dancing, right, we'll do that. <laughs> okay. So, but it really did feel like I've been living in a cave somewhere in the middle of the Gobi Desert for, for the last five to six years and the world has moved on so much. And therefore, the, the best piece of advice that was given to me was to be sensitive to differences. Hmm? To be sensitive to differences because it's, it's a big thing out there now. You have to be sensitive to differences. Differences in gender, differences in race, complexion, and so on. The thing is, and I completely understand that, I'm on board, right, I get it. The thing is, it's, it's, it's become so un, unusual for me that now, because when I sit down in front of an audience, I don't see those differences anymore. I honestly don't see those differences. I, as in, I don't, I don't mean, you know, with my eyes. I see those differences. I see that one is a man and the other is a woman. Thankfully, I still recognize that. What I mean is, I see more about what unites us. I see more of the predicament that we all find ourselves in. Boy or girl, man or woman, child or adult professional or amateur, rich or poor, black or white. In fact, human or even non-human. This is the predicament that we all find ourselves in, which 
can only be addressed. That common problem that what we share between all of us, this common problem that can only be addressed by realizing the truth. These are the truths that the Buddha comes into this world and shares with us. And we call them the four noble truths. These are noble because they surpass all perceived differences. So regardless of who you are, where you come from, what you like, what you don't like, who your mother and father were or are, matters not. Whether you're rich or poor, whether, you're, whether you think you're beautiful or you think you're ugly, whether you're fat or you're thin, whether you're tall or you're short, matters not. So because it matters not, I don't see those differences anymore. It is said that an arahant, one of which I'm not, an arahant sees all sentient beings as children. And like a mother sees all her children as one, as in not one, but there's, there's, she, she perceives no difference between them. She loves them all the same. So she doesn't love one child more than the other. In such way, in such a way, an arahant loves all sentient beings the same. So given the chance to help someone, it matters not what differences, it matters not what sets us apart. Ultimately, we are all in this together. So, we are here today not to see differences among ourselves, not to see how we are all different from each other, but really to see this common problem that unites us. There's one reason that brings us all here under this one roof in the presence of this great teacher. We have all come here looking for an answer to one problem that we all have. This is what we talk about here, and that is what we're trying to find an answer to. We understand that despite all the things that we find ourselves doing throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, the year, and throughout our lives, quite simply, despite all those things we find ourselves doing, we don't seem to keep getting any closer to the purpose behind that. You must admit that the reason that you find, you keep on finding, you keep on looking for, you're always on a quest of discovery for new things, bigger things, greater things, more exciting things, more wonderful things, more intriguing things, is because the one that you found previously, whichever order in the sequence, the one that you found previously did not float your boat. But you remain always hopeful that the next thing you're going to find is the one thing that you've been looking for. That's what happened with your last girlfriend. <laughs> ah, lived it, done it. Went to the gig and bought the t-shirt. I know what it's like. That's what happened when you bought your last car. When you last moved home. When you last went to the restaurant. When you last went out with friends. When you last went to a party, remember what you said when you got back home. When you came back to rest, remember the things that you said. Remember the, the, the updates that you posted on your social media. And all the things that you shared with your friends and said, you know, that was one heck of a party. That was the best thing that had ever happened to me. The, 
most amazing party that I'd been to. Well, if that ticked your box, if that did it for you, then how come a week later you're ringing around asking your friends, typing on your chat, when's the next party? The truth is, although you felt like that party was that euphoric experience that just transcended you into, you know, from this human existence to one that was completely soul-satisfying, ultimately you realized that was just another illusion. See, the problem that we are, uh, we are trying to address here, folks, and I really hope you, you, you understand this, we are all in a riddle. We are all lost, really. We are all trying to find something which always seems to be so evasive. It feels like it's always just there. And then the moment you reach out and try to grab it, it's a, it's a hallucination. It's not there. But you saw it. It was there. And so what you do is you take another step forward and try to reach out again. Put your arm on. Try and grasp it. And it's gone. This is, a meta this is metaphorical, I'm sure, but please do try and see how much this relates to life. Every time you did something that you thought was going to make you happy, was that one thing that was going to satisfy you and fulfill you and was the most rewarding experience that you were going to have. Why? Because your friend said so, your, your other half said so, your parents said so, your teacher said so, the books say so. The magazines say so, the tabloids say so, the internet says so, hmm? the forums say so. And so you went and you tried to get it, tried to grab it, but and it felt like it was just there. You reached out for it, you grasped it, and the moment you did, it was gone. Like soap bubbles. Ever played with them? You all had a childhood, right? You didn't come just like that. You know what soap bubbles are, Buddha? Hmm? Yeah, it's the thing that they had 10 years ago. They have virtual ones, I'm sure, nowadays, <laughs> that you can pop on a mobile phone app or something. <laughs> I'm sure they have that. <laughs> so they're like soap bubbles. Think about it. Every time you went for an experience and you thought, it was going to fulfill you, but it didn't, did it? That's why even today, you know, you, you, you feel exhausted sometimes, don't you? Think about, you go to work, you know, you, you, you cook for yourself. You know, think about those times where you, you know, go shopping, go to the supermarket, get all the things that you want. You know, maybe you get out a good cook, cook, uh, recipe book or you get a recipe from a friend right? and they tell you this is the, the best thing. Uh, this is the new thing in town. This is what... This is good, right? So you go and cook. You, sometimes you spend hours cooking it, right? And then you lay it out on the table. Now you're all ready to indulge yourselves and you sit around the table, serve. And, you know, that first bite, it feels like ambrosia. And the second bite, it feels almost like ambrosia. And then the third bite and the fourth bite. 
and the fifth and the sixth and about the tenth bite, you're like, where's ambrosia? Honestly, ask yourself this question. Why, why is it that when you thought this was the most delicious food in the whole wide world, why was it that a few bites later, a few mouthful later, mouthfuls later, you began to think, isn't there anything else we can have tonight? Or perhaps, you know, if the same thing got served night after night after night, how would that, how would that make you feel? Hmm? The best dish, the most delicious dish cooked by the world's best Michelin starred chef, right? If you were to cook something for you, could you? Could you really have the same thing over and over and over and over and over again? No. But how come? That's the most delicious thing. It's the most wonderful thing. The tastiest among tasty foods. So how come? If it, if it gave you such, an, such a wonderful experience on that first bite, then how come a few bites later you're already looking for something else? Why is it you keep on looking for variety? Why is it Malaysian today, Chinese tomorrow, Indian the following day? And, you know, why so much variety? I'm not saying that that's bad. Variety is good. Let it be. That's uh, the spice of life, right? Let that be. But you've got to ask yourself the question, when are you ever going to be satisfied? When are you ever going to be fulfilled? And why should you look for this? Well, because for as long as you remain unsatisfied and for as long as you remain fulfilled, you're always chasing after this. It's like the donkey going after the carrot, the promised carrot. That's why you should call it. It's the promised carrot. It's always a promise. A promise is something about the future, isn't it? It's not something about the past and it's not something about the present. I promise you, eh? I promise you, today you'll get lunch. I promise you. Huh? I'm talking about the future, something to come, right? So say you know, in a couple of hours time you come and say, Swaminasa, you said we were going to get lunch. Yeah, I promise you, you're going to get lunch. Half an hour later, you come again, but sometimes it's already quarter past twelve, lunch. Yeah, I promise you, you're going to get lunch. Don't go. Please don't go. Please stay. You're going to get served lunch today. It's it's five o'clock in the evening and you come here. Swami said, lunch? Yeah, I promise you. We're going to get you lunch. Please don't go. I know you're hungry. Just, just hang in there. We're going to get you lunch. Hmm? Just ask yourself the question, how long would you hang in here for lunch? I, I mean, how sad are you really? Huh? No one in their good mind would just hang around, you know, five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock. Lunch is not lunchtime anymore. Right? By the time the clock strikes one or two, and you're like, we ain't going to get any lunch here. Huh? Let's go and either make some or get some. Right? It's not happening. This is, a, this, is a, this is a broken promise. This is a false promise. It's a lie. But until you are convinced of that, you will hang around. Just like you're hanging around right now. I don't mean in this room. I mean in something much bigger than this room. I mean this sansaric journey that you're on. <laughs> Forever hopeful. Helplessly hopeful. Hopeful, always hopeful that the next turn will 
let you, will will help you get what you want. Just at the next turn, you're going to get it. Just at the next bend, you're going to find what you want. Take the next left and you'll get it. Take the next right and you'll get it. You know, someone seems to keep giving you these promises and you keep, you seem to keep going after it day after day after day. Aren't you exhausted by now? I'm not, honestly, I'm not trying to paint a gloomy picture of existence, although it might come across as such. All I'm trying to get you to do is to question this very existence that you're in. Right? We question what's beyond the stars, don't we? Like this started long, long, long time ago, in this time of the Aristotles, the Socrates, and so on. Philosophers from long time ago, they started to question about, you know, what's out there? And the moment they started, you know, their, their, their future generations, who we are today, continued on that path of questioning. Can you get further below than the Mariana Trench? Is there anything more than that? We keep questioning. Is there anything taller than the... I can't remember the name now. The Everest. Can you go beyond? Can you go further? Can you go deeper? Can you go wider? Can you go longer? We, we, we seem to think like this, this, this urge to keep discovering everything around us is somehow like a prized gift that we were born with. Science should be there, exploration, discoveries, you know, let them all be there because, you know, they have helped us to have a, live a comfortable life, surely. You know, back then people used to wear barks of trees around them, you know, you know the, the, the skins of dead animals to keep themselves safe, okay? And they lived in caves. I'm not saying we need to go back, you know, reverse modernization or reverse... Uh, advancement in science technology right i'm not that's not what i'm suggesting what i'm saying is that cannot be the be all and end all of your existence there's something that has always been so evasive so elusive that you have never begun to question and that is why do you exist because for as long as you exist you will need the help and the refuge of all these other things that have come to your rescue for as long as you exist, for as long as you don't question this very existence and why you have this unsatisfiable, unquenchable, unsatiable desire, hunger, thirst. You know, it's like an itch somewhere in your body, but you just can't figure out where it is. So you keep itching yourself, you keep scratching yourself, hoping that the next scratch will you know, do away with that. And you just keep on scratching. Ever hopeful, ever hopeful. Have you never had one of those itches? It's, it's somewhere, you never know where it is quite, but you just, you know, you try, keep on trying. It's a bit like that. Actually, it's a lot like that. So you keep on trying. That's why, you know, for, for some people, like, you know, science seems to be so pro, right? It seems to be so, so positive, whereas... They see, they see that Buddhism is so negative because science talks about advancement and, you know, the, the, the culmination of human intelligence and knowledge and, you know, and, and, and really reaching out for the next frontier. But, but Buddhism 
people believe is just so negative. He's always talking about how everything is just so, so suffering. You know, look at the four noble truths. Even that the Buddha talks about suffering. Now, why did he come in if he, he was such a party pooper? It seems like that's what he did. He comes into this world and talks about the first thing I'm going to teach you, he says, suffering. And the second thing I'm going to teach you, more about suffering. The third thing I'm going to teach you, oh, lots more about suffering. Please give us something that's not suffering. Yeah, well, the, the fourth thing I'm going to teach you, that's also to do with suffering. I'll tell you four truths, and they're all about suffering. You can imagine the response that, you know, some people would have had to that. Unless you were, you, were, you, know, you were in sync with what he was trying to say, unless you had the intelligence to understand what he had to say, you know, any, the average Joe would have thought, God, this guy, get a life. <laughs> but what we don't recognize is that this is the problem that we all seem to, you know, it affects all of us. But none of us are talking about it. It's the elephant in the room. It's there. But no one's talking about it. Everyone's talking about what we can do to alleviate the problems that are caused by it, but not it. We're not interested in the root cause. We are interested in the other causes. Not the, the immediate causes, not the root cause. Can you take the simple example? You want to you, you, you eat something. You want to eat something because you think it's delicious, it's nice, it's lovely. You've seen the advert, you, you, you know, you've seen the ice cream and you heard it and you thought, right, I need one of those things. Right? You walk up, you go to the restaurant, wherever, and you say, can I have some of this? And they, said, they say, sorry, run out. Oh, what about this? That too. Ah. This sold out. Ah. See? Now your problem is what you want isn't available. When did you stop to wonder, perhaps it's the wanting that is the problem? We don't stop to wonder that. We don't stop to think about that. Because no one talks about that. Because if you did, then they'd have to pull the handbrake on evolution, on advancement, hmm? on what the next generations are, are coming to do. You'd have to pull the handbrake. You'd have to apply the brakes. Desire keeps us going. It's the fuel. It's, it's the fuel that, that keeps advancement going, isn't it? Desire. Greed. Needing more. Never being satisfied. In fact, these are some of the things that you might be expected to say at a job interview. You know, tell us about yourself. Oh, I'm this go-getting kind of person. I'm never satisfied with results. I just want more. I always want to keep pushing myself. Ah, oh, excellent. This is the kind of person we want. Because that's the kind of person that is needed to keep adding fuel to this furnace that keeps the fires alight, that keeps the world rolling, keeps it going forward. Hmm? In those days, people used to walk barefoot. Today, we have shoes, we have footwear, we have headwear, we have... Look at all the things we adorn ourselves with. And it's still not enough. 
We walked on foot. Then we got on cows and horses. And then we came up with chariots, carts. And then came cars that got pulled around by, you know, the, uh, by animals and then, you know, human beings even. And then after that came the, the, the motor vehicles, locomotives and so on. But it wasn't enough because you, you, you just couldn't get where you wanted fast enough. It had to be faster than it had to be faster. Then came the trains and the bullet trains. And it's still not fast. Go and ask, you know, the people who invest their time, money and effort into developing new technology. Is that enough? No. R&D is never going to be satisfied. Research and development has to keep going on. Yeah, because, you know, there are problems affecting the humankind and they have to be solved. You know, there's global warming, there's poverty, there's, you know, there's AIDS. You know, these are problems that challenges that people have to find solutions to. But the thing is, you know, these are all problems that have come after the fact. We are also here to solve a problem. We are here to solve the fundamental problem. Because, you know, there are people who are doing a fine job at solving all the problems that come after the fact. But what we are trying to do is to try and fix the problem. It's like, you know, there are people out there who, the moment you say you're hungry, they'll run into the kitchen and they'll cook for you. And if you're not happy with that, they'll cook something else for you. If you're not happy with that, they'll cook something else for you. Right? And they'll cook everything they can find for you until you, are, you say you're happy, but you never will. What we are trying to do is to figure out why it is you get hungry and fix that. Because when that is done, now you don't need someone to go and cook for you. You don't need to keep running around. That is the problem we are trying to solve here. You have a pair of eyes that has always helped you to keep yourself sane. It's a punishment, you know, in prisons to put people into dark rooms. You know that, right? A while back we visited prisons to talk to those people and to help them to find, you know, to give them a solution to that problem. And I offered to them a solution. I said, you know, being in these dark rooms, it's a punishment for you, right? And they all went, yes. So they do that to you. Yeah. I said, shall I teach you how to escape that? And I got a stare. Not from the inmates. What's he up to? He looks all innocent. <laughs> in a robe and all that. What's he up to? Did you check him <laughs> when he came in? And I said, I said something really simple. You know, darkness is only a punishment to those who wish to see. That's all you have to say. <laughs> That's all you need to get out of prison. Isn't it? Yeah. Darkness is only a punishment to those who wish to see. Silence is only a punishment 
to those who wish to hear and listen. I'm proving it to you. Suffering? Enough? No. When you're there waiting to hear what's the next thing he's going to say. Hmm? We paid for this. Come on, say something. I didn't come here to just watch you sit down there like a duck. <laughs> say something. Right? When you're there, sat down there, just waiting for me to say something, that's a punishment. Remember, it's not me who's inflicting that punishment on you. You're doing it yourself. This urge, this desire, your wanting for something is your weapon, is your weapon for yourself, is the punishment that you impose on yourself. That is why what we are trying to do is to help you free yourself from that unsatisfiable desire to free yourself, to liberate yourself, not from me, from yourself. I want you to be someone who has eyes, who can see, but you don't particularly want to see. If someone wishes to show you something, I'll see it. If not, so be it. But just ask yourself, you know, how long you can keep your eyes shut without opening them when everything's going around and people start saying, oh, look at that. Isn't that just so lovely? Look at that. Oh, wow, that's so beautiful, isn't it? And you're supposed to keep your eyes shut. Hmm? See how, how, how much long you can be, <laughs> you can be like that. Try it out sometime. You know, maybe do it with your kid at home. Hmm? Give him a challenge. Right, I'm going to give you a challenge, darling. What? Keep your eyes shut. Until I ask you to open them. Okay, I'll do it, Dad. Right. Go on then. Shuts his eyes. Or her eyes. And then you say, let's switch on that cartoon. Switch on the telly. And then in the rest of you at home, you go, Oh, look at that. So cute, isn't it? So beautiful. Right? What would they start doing? <laughs> Why? Because you taught your kid math. That's what. Because you taught your kid how to count. You taught your kid science. You taught your kid biology and chemistry and physics. But you know what you didn't teach your kid? The Four Noble Truths. That's why. You didn't teach your kid how to remain unflustered, unbothered, Untroubled. So today, when, when something's going on, when something tries to draw their attention, they are drawn 
They can't help it. But you can't be blamed because, you know, no one taught you that. So you didn't know, so how could you teach your children that? That's what we do here. We teach you how to achieve unconditional happiness. Because that kid knows only one kind of happiness, and that is, if there's something that's beautiful, I have to, I have to see it. That's how the kid knows to be happy. If there's something tasty, then I have to taste it. That's how to be happy. You know, when just think about it. You know, when you were kids, when you were when you yourselves were kids, right? And you wanted something. You went crying to your mother, your father, your brother, whoever. I I want that. And said, No, you're not having it. I want it. No, you're not having it. Remember how it ended. Remember? Do you remember how you cried asking for something? You cried your eyes out and screamed at the top of your voice, rolled on the floor, threw things that you could you could find around you. And you went and you went and hit your mother if you could. I'm just, you know, as a young kid, just a little child. And then for sometimes for days you wouldn't talk with anyone because you were so upset, so angry. And what they did do after that was, you know, if you want this, you have to do this first. That's what they said. That you want a bike? Pass your exam first. Hmm? Want to watch TV? Do your homework first. So that's how we learned. We learned that there was always a way to get it. Right? We just had to learn how to. Look, uh, you know, this is this is life engineering. Okay, I'm trying to take you. I'm trying to I'm trying to help you relive your life and learn important lessons that you should have but you didn't because you learned math. That was the important thing for you for us to learn math and science and physics and biology and chemistry and this that's, that's but it was never important for us to find out the truths the absolute truths of what the, of what unites all of us together what makes us all one in this in this game so let's go back to take our own lives you know get into the lab of life and learn from those experiences when you when you were a kid what remember what you were taught if you wanted something you had to sacrifice something else hmm? that's what you were taught so if you wanted x you had to give up y so yeah, if you did your homework, you could get your bike. If you went to the temple, then you could come home and play your video games. But you were never taught why you wanted to watch video games so that you could free yourself. You were never taught why you wanted to watch TV. And perhaps if there was a way you can break free from that, that was not what was taught. You were taught to do business. You were taught to trade one for the other. So in trade, you have to learn what's valuable and the value of things. That's why then, you know, when you were younger, you had those stickers, right? Hmm? Sports personalities, you had stickers, you know, the cricketers and basketball players and athletes and so on. Hmm? So you'd exchange them with your friends. Hmm? So for chocolate, you'd give up uh, uh, Sanjay Surya. 
Hmm? For, a pack of, for a pack of biscuits, you give up Aravinda de Silva. Huh? Yeah? See? This is what we learned. Trade. So in trade, you have to learn the value of things. So immediately, things started to have value. They were valuable things and they were not so valuable things. But you didn't stop to realize how come the other person is willing to trade something that you find is not valuable with something that you think is valuable. You didn't stop to wonder, you didn't stop to wonder that value was simply something that I placed on the object. It was not something that was intrinsic. Because if it were, then you couldn't trade. How come this guy, I mean, is he an idiot? He's giving me his, his, his chocolate for Sanat Jaisuri. What's he like? You thought that was a good deal, didn't you? You thought that was a good deal? Or you, you traded Marylebone Square for, uh, for, you know, for Leicester Square? Or maybe Paul Mall for Regent Street? What am I talking about? Yes, thank you. Ah, now that's one I haven't played yet. <laughs> I know. You can teach me one day. Don't worry, we'll have all the time in the world, won't we? <laughs> Bring it when you come, okay? You can pack your sarong and your Pokemon card pack. <laughs> we'll give you everything else. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I wish I had that kind of childhood. You know, the kind of childhood this, this young boy has and this, these young children. Hmm. You know, they, they get to learn from the greatest teacher at such a young age. Because their parents have realized that it's not math that teaches them how to be happy. Matt teaches you how to value and how to calculate, how to add, subtract, divide and multiply the things that you think are valuable. So then you can trade with each other. You can exchange things that are of value. You can take it onto the stock market. You can take it to the exchange bureau and, 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 and trade with someone. You know, that's what math helps you do. But math doesn't teach you why you wanted it in the first place. So really, what math does is it helps you exist. It doesn't teach you why you exist. So existence is a condition. And for as long as existence prevails, now you have an existential problem. We are here to try and address that problem, the fundamental problem. You know, folks, if you, if you get this, if, once you understand this, once you realize this, you are free. You will no longer have to depend, rely, beg, borrow or steal from someone, from anyone, your happiness. Right now, you know, you know, there are people at this very moment who probably on one knee 
begging for happiness from a girl. Please make me happy. In exchange, I give you this ring. And the funny thing is, she says, okay. You got to wonder why she says okay. Because in her mind, she's thinking, finally, I found someone who can make me happy. Idiot. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, take an, an intellectual view of this. You know, let's not be sentimental. You know, under this roof, let's not be sentimental. Once we walk out of this, you know, you can all, you know, walk hand in hand, right? And get, you know, do whatever you want. Right? But here, let's take an intellectual and in, in, an intelligent viewer thinks, because this is the only time we have in the week to do this. Just two hours. 168 hours in the week. I only ask you for two hours. Let's just reflect on what's going on with your life. The remaining 166, you can do whatever the heck you like. Think about it. For someone to go and beg at someone else's feet, please make me happy. The only reason that the other person says okay is because she or he is not happy himself or herself. And so they say, all right, well, let's trade then. You give me what I want, I'll give you what you want. How can someone who's not happy make someone else happy? But people don't stop to think about that. People don't stop to think, why is it that when I give this guy this sticker, he gives me that? Surely then, this happiness is not in that sticker. That people don't stop to think. Now, that's just a very simple example. Now, you know, fast forward life and now you're, you're adults. Think about what you do right now as adults. Again, in the name of happiness, it's simply, you know, in the namesake, it's a namesake. As I said right at the start, it's always been so elusive. It's, it feels like it's there because everyone says it is. Everyone says it is. So it feels like it's there, but then you go and you try and grab it and it's just a hallucination. It feels like it. How then do we build ourselves up, strengthen our minds, liberate ourselves so that we, our happiness is not dependent on what others choose to do or choose not to do. Wouldn't you like to feel empowered that you are your own master, that you are the master of your own happiness so that other people don't hold the keys to your happiness? I mean, shouldn't that be the life goal of everyone? Don't you think so? If that is what people commit their lives to, if that remains the purpose throughout, you know, right from start to end, right? a young infant, a, the, the, a newborn baby, cries because it's not happy about something. Maybe it's a mosquito bite. Maybe it's hungry. Maybe it's got a sore back. Whatever. Right? And it starts crying. You know, right from then to the last few moments, you've got your eyes open. Right? Again, you're crying. So what have you achieved in your lifetime? Think about it. If you're crying, if crying is the first thing you do coming into this world. And crying is the last thing you do leaving this world. What the heck is life all about? What have you achieved in your lifetime? Have you progressed? Have you moved any further? Have you, have you improved yourself? Have you developed yourself? Think about it. You know, if, you, if, you're, if your dying mother was, you know, you were holding her hand as, as she gasped her last breath, and if you, you know, looked in her eyes, right, and if she was 
if she if if she had eyes full of tears because she was so sad to leave you if she was so so you know if she was broken hearted if she was so in so much pain i don't mean physical pain i'm talking about the mental pain and she was holding your hand just you know like i'm never going to let you go and been you know, begging to the doctors can you make me last for another few more minutes so i can be with my family so i can be with my loved ones so i can be with all the things that make me happy so i can be with my pet so i can be with my son so i can be with my daughter my husband my wife my children my house i can i i have to leave all this now please can you let me live another day crying and again begging borrowing stealing what has that 70 years of living achieved if you come into this world crying and if you have to leave this world crying folks distance traveled a million miles displacement zero why you don't have to be like that you don't have to be like that If you came into this world crying that's not your fault but if you leave this world crying oh boy you're a sad 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 person it's completely and utterly your fault I'm paraphrasing someone else they said if you die if you if you're born poor that's not your fault but if you die poor that's yours So if you're born unhappy, if you're born sad, if you're born crying, that's your fault. But if you die crying, so if you're born crying, that's not your fault. That's someone else's. Okay, but if you die crying, that's your fault. Because you had a chance, you had every chance, seventy long years to try and fix that problem, but did you? No. Why? Because you were busy studying math. That's why. No, I haven't got anything against math. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> you get the idea. I don't want you to die crying, folks. Is that is that is that okay for me to be like that? Hmm? Is that okay that I care about you like that? I don't want you to die crying. I want you to die happy. but people don't even like to talk about dying because it's so ah oh, let's not talk about death you know in some some cultures you know they forbid you from talking about it it's only because i'm here i'm still talking about this subject in some places i would have gotten kicked out oh no one would have come in some cases it's just you know it's just so frowned upon don't oh, death don't talk about it it's not talk about death again elephant in the room how much longer do we want to keep fooling ourselves and you know this is not death is not the topic of my talk today all i'm saying is if you have to leave this world crying how sad how sorry of a life you've lived you don't need to be like that 
But you can't fix it at the moment of death. That's too late to fix it. Fixing it has to happen now. That is why you're here, to fix it. To fix it now. And to fix it now, you just need to understand the truth. That's all it is. You know, the magic of the Dhamma is it all, there's only one thing you need to do, and that is to understand, is to realize the truth. After you realize it, everything else just happens automatically. It's simply effortless after that. Effortless. Because this is all. All of suffering is based on ignorance. Ignorance is not something you have to fix by changing any part of your body or changing any aspect of your body. No physical exertion required at all. Ignorance is a state of mind. Ignorance is a state of mind. If you don't know what this is, all you've got to do is ask me and I'll tell you. Now you're no longer ignorant. See how easy it is? It's fine if you came in here, you didn't know what this was. Now you're ignorant, right? What do you do? Fine. Does anyone in the room know what this is? Yes, I do. Okay, what is it? I'll tell you. If you're happy to listen, then I tell you. And now, that's it. You're no longer ignorant. Simple as that. Isn't it so wonderful that all of suffering is based in ignorance? What if it was based on the fact that you had an arm? When people misinterpret suffering, they think that's because of that. And that's why they think, you know, this body is what brings them suffering. No, it's not. Then, then people start to start to work on, you know, try to fix the problem of aging. You know, a lot of people come and they, they tell me, isn't being reborn what we're trying to stop here? I said, no. It's not rebirth we're trying to stop here. That's just, you know, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Just let go of that. Aren't you suffering right now? No, I'm not. Well, aren't you suffering wanting to know whether rebirth exists? <laughs> doesn't that bother you? That curiosity, doesn't you keep you, down, keep you up at night? Samina, Samina said, are people reborn when they die? Not going to tell you. No, please tell me. Are people reborn after they die? Not going to tell you. Are people reborn after they die? Not going to tell you. Ah, why won't you tell me? Because that's not the problem. What's the problem? That is, you're getting annoyed. <laughs> you're getting annoyed is not a function of you being reborn. You're getting annoyed is a function of your state of mind right now. You know, an arahant lives inside all of you. I love it that the fact, I love it that the Buddha put Nibbana in such simple terms when he said, it's the eradication of desire, aversion and delusion that is Nibbana. What that goes to say is, there is nothing you need to do once you've done that. Meaning, it's like the rust on an iron. There are three levels or three layers of rust. All you got to do is de-rust it. Raga, gone. Desha, gone. Moha, gone. That's it. Now the iron, that's Nibbana. 
So once raga, dvesha and moha, desire, aversion and delusion have been taken out, what's left is nibbana. See? Doesn't that mean nibbana is already with you? So you don't need to go looking for nibbana. It's not something you'll find anyway by going looking for it. You just got to stop looking for whatever is not Nibbana. And then you are in Nibbana. (laughs) Where did that come from? You know, there was one day a man, once upon a time there was a man who was carving a rock. He's a sculptor. Someone goes and asks him, what are you doing? I'm sculpting a statue, he says. Okay. Of whom? The Buddha. Oh. So what do you do? So this man is sculpting a rock. Oh, he's chiseling away at it. And then he gives a wonderful answer. He says, I take out everything that is not the Buddha. What remains is the Buddha. That's what I'm asking you to do. Inside each of you is the Buddha. I'm trying to help you take out everything that is not the Buddha. Desire, aversion, and delusion are not the Buddha. I'm a sculptor. You are my rock. I'm chiseling away. Every week you come here, I'm chiseling away at it. Sometimes it's hit and miss. Sometimes there are more misses than hits. Especially if I'm well, I'm chasing away, you're going that. <laughs> but if you're wide awake and paying attention, every time I give, I hammer away at the at it, at the chisel, you know, that's a little more of whatever is not the Buddha chiseled out. So there's a Buddha inside all of you folks. I mean, you know, take pleasure in that. Have assurance in that. Throughout sansara, you came looking for that. It's not out there. If Buddha is something that we can say is synonymous with with happiness, right? Then everyone's been looking for Buddha. But they've been looking outside for it. They thought the Buddha can be found in an ice cream. Buddha is happiness after all. It is happiness. Buddha is happiness. They went to the theater looking for Buddha. They went to the party looking for Buddha. They went to the drama looking for the Buddha. They cooked a seven-course meal looking for the Buddha. They got on a flight and went to another country looking for Buddha. Went on holiday looking for the Buddha. Now they're going to Mass looking for the Buddha. Is not there. 
Because wherever you're looking, that's where the Buddha isn't. Once you stop looking for him, he's there. Just stop looking for the Buddha. Stop trying to find him and you found him. Whatever you do in the name of happiness is what keeps you from it. Because happiness is already within you. Think about who an arahant is really. You know, just to make sense of what I'm trying to get across to you folks, who is an arahant? Really, the question should be, what is an arahant? Yeah, because it's not who is a Buddha, but what is a Buddha? An arahant is a mind. A mind that minds its own business. A mind that just serves the purpose that the mind comes into this world. Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana. This is the Buddha. That is the Buddha. Anything above, over and above that, anything more than that, now you've stepped out of Buddhahood. So, the reason that the mind goes into this, into the, on this discovery of whatever that is not Buddha is because it believes that it has to achieve happiness by doing something. That is the very thing that we need to try and stop doing. Think about, you know, how you live your life. And as I said, you know, go back to your childhood and, you know, keep coming and going a few times and then you'll realize all the things that you've been doing, trying to find the Buddha. You know, if really someone says, you know, what is the purpose of everything you've done in your life? You could simply say, I was looking for the Buddha. So really, you're all bodhisattvas. No, fair dues. We're all bodhisattvas. Everyone's a bodhisattva. At the end of the day, everyone's a bodhisattva. Whether, they, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're a Buddhist, right? You're, we are all bodhisattvas. We are all looking for happiness. We are all looking for Buddha. How do we achieve happiness in our lives? The fact of the matter is, it's always with you. So the moment you look outside, it's gone. So why do we look outside is the next question to ask then. That is because of our ignorance. Ignorance that whatever is outside is happiness. Whatever is you know, the, the next thing that you need, that is happiness. So this is, this is what has driven you throughout your lives. This is what has kept you from experiencing what you already have. The sights that you've been going after, the sounds that you've been running after, the smells, the tastes and the touch that you've been running after. After all, you know, your, your, life, has been, your life has been a, a rat race, hasn't it? That's what I said right at the start. You know, there's, it's never been enough. Because, you know, if you keep looking for something where it doesn't exist and you're convinced that it is, tell me when would you stop? You want me to ask you the question again? If you're looking for something where it doesn't exist, but you're convinced it is, when would you stop looking for it? Hmm? Never. Never. What evidence do we have of that? A sansara and how many years? 
fill in the blanks. You've been looking for something where it doesn't exist. That was a problem. That is the problem. That has been the problem. You're looking for Buddhahood outside. That's why, you know, if someone comes here, they wish to be an Anagarika. Right? They, want, they wish to be an Anagarika or they wish to be a, a Swami Nuhansa one day, a monk, become a monastic. Right? Sometimes, you know, people come and say, I, I, I really want to be a Swami. I want to be a monk. Why? Why do you want to be a monk? Because I think monkhood will give me happiness. Sorry, wrong number. <laughs> you say nothing could be further from the truth. And from time to time, you know, when it's time for uh, Anagarika Mahatyas to ordain, right? Because they fulfill at least a year of uh, practice at the monastery before we give them the opportunity to enter robes, right? So what we do from time to time is, you know, when they're almost ready and they've now been given a date, right, we tell them, mm, on second thoughts, let's postpone your ordination by mm, a couple of months. And if they go, but, yeah, that's why. Because you think, you think that happiness is in becoming a monk. You don't deserve to be a monk. Here's a key. What's that? What does that mean? You deserve not to be a monk, but one with a key at the end. Yeah. You don't deserve to be a monk. Because a monk is not someone who believes that it's monkhood that gives him happiness. That is not happiness. Because then again, you've, you, once again, you know, you've, you've outsourced your happiness, haven't you? Then again, your teacher decides whether you're happy or not. Ah, no, 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 no. Or your preceptor monk, he's supposed to now decide whether you're happy or not. No. No, the Buddha doesn't teach us that it's the Buddha that makes us happy. No. He says, I show you the path. You achieve your own salvation. You achieve your own liberation, your own happiness. I'm not responsible for that. Therefore, I'm not going to give you happiness and neither am I going to take away your happiness. It's always been with you. I'm just trying to teach you that. So, our, one of our tests for whether an Anagarika Mahatma is ready to become a monk is at any point we say, no, another couple of months, three more months, six more months. They should be able to go, as you wish, Swami Nansa, whatever you say. Because if we are able to take away their cool by saying that, hmm? Now you might think, that's harsh, Swaminansa. You know, they've done a whole year's worth of training and how, how could you do something like that to someone? Yeah, that's why we do things like that to others. <laughs> because we want to ensure and empower them. Hmm? We want to make sure that they are fitting material to become a monk. Because a monk is not someone who hangs their hat of happiness on another person's hanger. 
There's nothing that I own that you can take away from me and make me sad. This robe included. That is my monkhood. It is not in this robe. It is not in my arms boat. It is not in my shaven head. It is not in this or in the way I sit or in the kuti that I live in. It's not in this monastery. Take any of those things away from me and see if you can perturb me, bother me, annoy me, disturb me. If you can, I have not ordained yet. You got that? If you can do that, I am not ordained yet. My ordination is my understanding that all things are equal. Shaved head, full head. Robe, trousers. As I said, this is custom. I'm in a robe because that's what monks are supposed to be in. It's an easier life, I give you that. No more ironing, no more, you know, spending hours trying to dry it. None of that. No more pulling up a zipper uh, and all the things that can go wrong when you try and do that. Uh, gents in the house, you know what I'm talking about. Mm, no more checking whether it's a zip or a button. None of that rubbish. None of that nonsense. Simple, very simple life. In that simplicity, you know, life has been a lot easier as a monk. That, that I can give you. Mm, I don't need to bother about washing my hair. I don't do that. I wash my head, not my hair. Don't have to gel my hair, don't have to brush my hair, don't have to tie my hair, don't have to color my hair, because I don't have any hair. <laughs> I've got two robes on me, this one and the one I've got underneath, that's it. But I remember as a young man, I had lots on me. Shirt, vest. Trousers, under trousers, and then if you live in a cold country, then there's there's more you gotta wear, and then socks, and then slippers or shoes you gotta decide depending on you know how people expect to see you. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. Some places you can go in slippers, other places you have to go in shoes. Yeah. Hmm? Here, if, if they see you in shoes or slippers, then they frown at you. But hey, you're a monk. <laughs> Why have you got shoes on? <laughs> Simple. That's not to say, you know, I, if I have to wear slippers, I'll wear slippers because if there's something that can hurt me, then you know, then I'll, I'll wear it. But I don't. No one expects me to do that. So this lifestyle is simply for convenience. But my happiness is not in any of these things. You can take any of these from me, and you can't bother me. You can come and tell me from now on. You know, we are going to strike your name out from the register of the Buddha Sasana Ministry. And we are going to annul your membership as a, as a monk. Okay. <laughs> if you want to do that, do that. Don't bother me. Because that is, my monkhood is that, folks. It is having an unshakable mind. Unbothered. It's not a case of 
I don't care about anything else. You know, don't care. There's water spilled on the floor. Don't care. You know, someone's going to die and don't care. You know, there's a, there's a snake in the room and someone might get bit. Don't care. It, it's not that. No, it's not about not giving a rat's ass about anything. It's not that. You know, why, why am I here? Is it not because I care? I, I care. I care a lot about, I care a lot about suffering minds. That's what I care about. I care a lot about suffering minds. I care a lot about the fact that Jati has still got you. That Mara is still playing tricks on you. That's what I care about. <clears throat> I, I care about the fact that you are still struggling to achieve Buddha. I care about that. That is what metta is. Compassion, loving kindness. The, the desire to help people free themselves from the, from, from the torture that they inflict upon themselves, not others. You know, if someone brings a gun and keep, you know, holds it next to your head and says, I'm going to shoot this person. If you want, you can stop me, Swami. So I'm like, no, you do what you have to do. I'll do what I have to do and I'll talk the Dhamma to you. Let, the, let him do what he has to do. I'll do what I have to do. You do what you have to do. It's his job to, to decide whether to pull the trigger or not. Hmm? It's my job to help you understand that there is no one here to kill anyone. You understand what I'm saying? Hmm? These are all perceptions of the mind that there is someone trying to kill me, which is also someone. This is a self-perception. Right? I'm, I'm going to try to talk to you and convince you of that. You can decide whether you want to look at that guy and, and start sweating and, and, you know, and almost faint before he pulls the trigger, or you listen to me and realize the truth. So each of us have a role to play. I'm here to play my role. Someone comes running to you with a knife in hand trying to stab you. I'm not going to stop that person. I'm going to stop you. That's who I'm going to stop. That's who the Buddha stopped. Remember Angulimala's story? Hmm? And when Angulimala comes to the Buddha and says, you ask me to stop when you are running? And the Buddha says, no. I've stopped. You're still running. I'm here to help you stop. I'm here to help you stop doing things that is not none of your business. That's what he meant. This mind of yours is doing things that is none of its business because it's not minding its own business. So I'm going to help you stop. That's why, folks, you know, we all have a purpose here. You have no idea how fortunate you are to have been born human beings. You have no idea. You have no idea how fortunate you are to come across the noble association that you have. Someone brought you here. Someone helped you here. Someone talked to you about coming here. I don't mean here, here, here. I mean here. To listen to what the Buddhas come into this world to share with us. That here. It doesn't have to be this monastery. It doesn't have to be from me. It doesn't have to be in this voice. It doesn't have to be in these words. But here. Here. Here, here. Where we offer ourselves to the truth, embrace the truth, listen to it, 
that here. It is only the truth that will set you free. Because it is ignorance that has taken away your freedom. You have created a prison for yourself. This is what I told those inmates at the prison. Shall I set you free? They're like, yeah. Heck yeah. You got to ask? <laughs> I said, well, what did I say? Your darkroom treatment is only a punishment to those who wish to see. In those words, they have the key to get out of prison. Two sermons later, they said, don't come again. <laughs> no, I mean, fair enough, right? You couldn't give the prison treatment if people like us, you know, and us no good as go there and, and start talking to people about how, because, you know, they, they don't permit physical torture in prisons. You, you can't hurt someone physically. So you have to, you have to make, you have to correct them by using other methods. You have to, oh, you can only try and fix the mind. But they don't really fix the mind. They try and punish the mind. That is what prison is. Punishment of the mind. But it is no one that can do that to you. Only you can do that to you. To yourself. And I know in some prisons what they do is they'll put you into a room and then they start playing at all sorts of like, like you know, all sorts of sounds which are really difficult to listen to. They're, they're, they're not very melodious. You know, they're very like distorted sounds and and you know it, it can really get you and sometimes they'll, they'll play uh, uh, the the noises of crying babies that's a punishment yeah it's a torture technique someone told me they use it at cia a torture technique they put you in a box you have to get into the box right and then after that they play noises of crying babies apparently that, that really gets on your nerves. Because why? Why? Because you don't like to hear the sound of crying babies. That's why. <laughs> of course. What you don't like hurts you. It's your not liking it that hurts you. Not it. You're not liking it. In other words, you like it not being there. When you dislike something, try and figure out what it is you like. That is the problem. If you don't like someone calling you names or racial slurs, these are things that offend people, don't they? Yeah. Racial slurs. I mean, if, if, you, if you are of black complexion, you know, there are lots of words that could be used to offend you, right? If you are of uh, fair skin, so there are lots of words that can be used to offend you. No, I disagree. It's not the word that offends you. It's not the word that offends you. You cannot be punished without your permission. You identify yourself with your complexion. You believe that you are a white man. You believe that you are a black man. You identify your body, your complexion, your structure, the fact that you are male. Your mind believes that you are that. It identifies itself. 
So in the creation of the self, this rupa, this form, becomes a, a part of the ingredient. So now you come as a package, that's what you think. This is me, you know, look, I'm this color. I'm a man, I'm a monk. This is a mind speaking out loud. Utter nonsense. This is a mind speaking out loud. So when you identify yourself with what you see in the mirror, now anything that goes against that or that is considered to be offensive, you know, there are certain words, right, that are offensive, I, especially, you know, racial words. I, I, I had to learn them when I went to the UK. I had to learn them. They taught me. They said, whatever you do, you'll hear people say these things, but don't do that. Don't say them. They taught me the N-word. They said, don't use that. Because I heard people say that. You know, in some circles, you know, people say that. And I said, what's that word? I've never heard that one before. <laughs> Funny thing is, my, my best friend at uh, college was a black guy. So, <laughs> so I asked him, what's the meaning of this word? <laughs> he said, You're not, you, didn't, you didn't just address me with that word, did you? you? You asked me the meaning of it, right? Yeah, yeah, what's the meaning of this word? <laughs> and I said, the word. Like, you sure you don't know this word? No. Okay, it's one of the most offensive words you could use towards a black man. Oh. But why? Why? I mean, it's just a word. It's just, it's, these are just letters bundled together. It's just a, it's just a sound that the, the vocal box makes. Why do you take offense to that? You don't get it, do you? He asked me. No. These are offensive words. That's why. Don't ask me any more questions. They're just, they're offensive words. Who decided that they were offensive words? Didn't he decide that it was an offensive word? So why let someone offend you by deciding that these words are offensive words? You know, why couldn't you just in, reinterpret them? Like, the N-word means nice man. <laughs> Just, just reinterpret because you're the one who interpreted them. You, who stopped you from interpreting it the first time you did? So who's going to stop you from interpreting it the second time you're doing it? Just you know, come up with your own interpretations. Any swear word, right? If someone comes up to you and says swear word, you have your own interpretations of them. And then every time they say something like that, you say thank you. <laughs> oh, you're so kind. Oh, really? I didn't know you think you thought about me like that. Thank you so much. Just don't say I wish you the same. Because you can't help their interpretation of it. Yeah, obviously, they, if they wish to offend you, then you know, retaliation might be perceived on their part. So then they might be offended in turn. But what I'm saying is, you know. This is all two-dimensional, of course, right? Because you, to, to not be offended by these words, it shouldn't be our strategy to reinterpret them. That's not, that's not the strategy I'm talking about, right? That is not the strategy. It's not the Buddha's way. The Buddha's way is you're okay with anything and everything. Throw everything at you, anything at you, and you're fine with that. You don't have to reinterpret. And if someone comes and calls you a dog right, or a donkey or a cow, now, you don't have to think that, oh, that he means butterflies. 
you, you don't have to think like that. That is not Buddhism. Buddhism is, you know that, you know what a dog is. You know that it's an, it's, it's generally a term that is used to offend someone, right? Or a cow is a, is a, is a, is a word that is used to offend someone, right? You know that. And you're still okay with that. Because you don't identify yourself as someone who's not that. Because you haven't identified yourself as someone else. It's when you identify yourself as you, as whoever you are. I'm a man, I'm a person, I'm a gentleman, I'm a doctor, I'm an engineer, I'm a white man, right? I'm a tall man, I'm a thin man, right? When you identify yourself, when your mind identifies with whatever this is, now you take issue. Whenever someone says something, that goes against that. But it's not the mind's business to identify with any of this. We do it for convention, of course. Someone asks you, what is your race? You have an answer ready, please. Someone asks you, what is your religion? Have an answer ready. Someone asks you, are you black or white? And they give it on the box, right? You know, tick your whatever, ethnicity, your race, whatever. You know, you don't have to six, you don't have to tick the undisclosed, right? I'm not happy to say. You don't have to. I mean, I sometimes wonder why do they have that box? It's because, I don't know, I can't pass judgment, but they have a box. If you, you sometimes they ask you, what is your gender? I don't want to say. Prefer not to say. What is your race? Prefer not to say. Uh, what is your color? Prefer not to say. If you ask me, I have no problem saying who people think I am. Who? People think I am. That's okay. But the problem is if I identify myself with that. You have a question, sir? Yeah. Ah, okay. <clears throat> Again, I think it's a it's it's a, it's a cultural thing. So the identification of the body is black, or the color of the skin is black. The color of the skin is white. Fair, whatever, right? The problem is, it's not the mind that is black, is it? It's not the mind that is fair. The mind's purpose is not to identify with this as you. It's just a body. And this is just the house in which I live. If the mind was to take that approach, then fair enough. You know, so if someone says, you're black, you're white. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. But when you say, I am, in those words, you need, you need to understand what you're actually saying. I am because people say, people look at this, this, all of this, and people think that this is me, right? All of what you see is me. Really, this is the mind that is talking here. The mind cannot have a face. The mind does not have, a, have, a, have arms and legs and a body. Oh, so therefore, how a complexion. But we know that the mind resides in this body, arising and passing away, right? And so for convention... When someone asks you, are you male or female? Of course, you have an answer to that. But an arahant knows that this is the answer I'm supposed to give because to everyone else, I'm a man, I'm a woman. Because this is what they see. But in their mind, they know that this is simply the expected answer. They know that. They understand that, they realize that, they comprehend that. This is the expected answer. Because an arahant does not identify himself or herself again you know that's the thing i have to say himself or herself really the, the appropriate term would be an arahant does not identify itself 
Because an arahant is a pure mind. That's what an arahant is. It's not a man or a woman or a child or an adult. An arahant is a pure mind. A mind that, is a, that has achieved Buddhahood. Eradicated raga, eradicated dvesha, eradicated moha. There you go. Raga ke desha ke moha ke nibbana. So, whatever is left after you've ext- extracted the rust of desire, the rust of de- uh, aversion and the rust of delusion, whatever is left is nibbana. So, what is left then? Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankar That's Nibbana. So how is that black? How is Rupa white? How is that tall or fair or short or stout? No. That's just convention. So for conventional purposes, when we live in society, right, we have to, that's why I said, you know, if you want to jump up to the sky, first you have to firmly place your feet on the ground because that's where you take the jump from. So therefore, as we live in society, we have to adhere to convention. We don't go against convention. We always adhere to convention. The rule of the land always supersedes the rule of the Buddha. This is the instruction that he has given us. It always takes precedence. So if we, if we move to some other country and, and they say monks should sit outside and lay devotees to sit inside, then we sit outside. So it's not for us to say, how dare you say that? We are supreme, we are superior. Ah, uh-huh. no. Then maybe in, in some cultures they'll say the clergy has to take uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the lower seats and the lay people take the upper seats. Okay, if that's the convention, that's the convention. In our culture, it's, it's different. Which one's right, which one's wrong? <laughs> no, asking that question is wrong. Asking that question and expecting an answer is wrong. Those are simply conventions. Whatever the convention, whatever helps us live a harmonious life, right? Without, you know, without, without looking at all the differences uh, between ourselves. Because when we get so entangled and embroiled in all these differences that we have, we forget the real problem. That's what happens. People are so, you know, they're so busy. They're so engaged in trying to figure out how to, how to mix all, all these races together and how to, how to make sure that people can live in harmony and all this and that. Because one, the moment you start talking about it, you've already set down differences. You know, how can the black people get together with the white people? Immediately you've said, these are the black people, these are the white people. So you're already creating the problem before you start to fix it. I'm not saying they should stop or change. I'm just saying this is simply my interpretation of it. What I see is I don't see black or white. I see there's a mind that has a problem. And we are all in that. Because we are all minds with a problem. The problem is we don't mind our own business. Because we, have, we are ignorant of the first noble truth. Ignorant of the second and the third and the fourth noble truth. That is the problem. This is a problem of the mind, not of the body. You can't see someone's mind, so how can you pass judgment? How can you make comment about it? But if someone's angry, you know the mind is angry. Yeah? So why hit them? Pointless. You know, say, that's what I'm saying. I have to, you know, give all due credit to the prison officers because on one occasion I went and spoke with them and I think it was the very first visit. I got the good opportunity to speak with a senior official there. And uh, I, I, I quite 
respected the fact that the gentleman thought that you know this prison system is not is not the real treatment that we need to give them because hitting them or torturing them in these ways is is not going to fix this problem so i mean answer he he explained to me i said i'm glad you we are you know on the same page here you know in some in some places they'll they'll hit people okay why because they've stolen something it was the mind that stole why hit the body think about it now someone comes and shouts at you if your response is to hit them back why because they shouted at me what did they shout with what who was the the, the culprit here the mind then why hit the body hmm? pointless because you are unable to distinguish mind and body that's why you hit the body because you know what happens is the mind goes as you listen to it you are offended by it right and now the mind goes into agitation vexation now you have to relieve yourself from that vexation somehow and when you are not armed with the dhamma and you don't see that this was simply a vexed mind that scorned you in that way you know as you practice the dhamma folks you know this is one of the first things that you need to arm yourselves with when someone shouts at you when someone blames you for something you haven't done a false accusation or maybe offense or insults you you need to understand that they are more patient not patience they are more patient than you are not patient as in is very patient patient as in needs treatment ailed they're weaker than you that's why they couldn't contain the anger they couldn't contain the the frustration the the anxiety the stress therefore they took it out on you because they think you are the problem would you kick a madman if they came and yelled something at you would you hmm you say you know they took you on a trip to the mental asylum hmm just imagine they took you on a trip to the mental asylum maybe a school trip or something now, do you know what your teachers would tell you before they took you as i said right children please do listen right when we go there there'll be uncles and aunties running around some of them naked some of them half right and some may come running at you and they'll come up to your face and start yelling at you some might call you names right some might say you're ugly some might just come and you know poke their uh, point their finger at you and go ha 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 Right? Where's that from? Simpsons. Yeah. So, right. So you know, people will go and do come and do all sorts of things. You are not supposed to respond to that. Why? Because dear children, they are insane. They've lost it. They are not capable of making judgments, clear, precise, accurate judgments. They cannot control the way their minds operate. They don't have intelligence. at least in that state of mind to 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 determine this is or not i'm not supposed to do this in this situation i'm not only supposed to do that they don't have those boundaries that you and i can appreciate because they're insane so you don't respond to that they would say that wouldn't you wouldn't they right so if you did go there and people would come up to you you wouldn't kick them how dare you say that to me and <laughs> because then they'll want let you leave they'll keep you anna <laughs> wouldn't they If you hit <laughs> If you hit one of them back they won't let you leave they 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 keep you there 
Because it's only a madman who hits back at a madman. Now think about society. Think about what happens in society. You know, get into a bus, you, you tread on someone's foot by mistake. You know the response you get? Oh, I've been there. They'll first stare at you. Hmm. Excuse me. What's with the frown? Excuse me. No, why, why, why this? Yeah, of course, it hurts, right? If someone was stepping on your foot, it hurts. You can say, I'm really sorry. I think you're stepping on my foot. Please, wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind, be very polite. But that's not the usual reaction you get. Excuse me. Hello? Can you please like, see where you're putting your foot? Hello? It's like, if he, like he wanted to do it deliberately. I'm saying, you know, first of all, let's guard ourselves with some common sense. Right? If, if we are angry and we take it out on someone else, that's, that's our weakness. Because we think it's they who made us angry. Shame on you. Don't ever catch yourself retaliating. If you're angry, it's okay, you're angry, you get angry, right? It's fine. Because, you know, it's over time, only you practice the Dhamma, and then, you know, your mind starts to heal, right? And you, you, you get better at it, and, you know, you become emotionally intelligent first, and then eventually, through the Dhamma, the, the Dhamma pacifies and cools your mind, and then you become someone who cannot be made angry. That happens eventually. Nothing on this world, in this world can make you angry. You get to that point. We are getting there, so I know that it's possible. We're getting there. Nothing in this world can make you angry. But until you get there, please, first of all, recognize that it's your own weakness that you're angry. No one else made you angry. Because anger is not something that someone can make you be. So if, if you are in the bus and someone steps on your foot, uh, on the train, someone, someone says, oh, someone takes your seat. Uh, you went up to go to the loo, and on the way back, you know, someone's already taken his seat. You know, look, at, just imagine the, the usual reaction to these things I'm saying for, you know, this is the society that, that's out there. You don't fit in that society, that's what I'm saying. You know, very soon, you're going, to, you're going to look like a different species. People will start asking you, are you nuts? That guy took your seat, and you're just standing there like a cucumber. What are you like? Tell him off. I remember that when I went to work. I, I, I remember this experience so vividly. I think I've shared with you once. I went to work one day I, and we have to book our desks at work. So we, I booked the desk online, went into work. And when I walked into the office, someone was sat at my seat. So I was looking around. Is there another workstation I could log in from? And then some other gentleman, he knew that that's where I normally sit. But so this guy was new to the office who had taken my seat. And he asked, he's got your seat. Yeah, yeah, I noticed. I'll um, see if there's some other seat available. I said, no, don't do that. Ask him to leave. You booked it. It's yours. So, <laughs> my problem has somehow become his problem. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's digging my grave. Why? 
Have you not seen people do that? You know, you can outsource your problems to them. They deal with it. They call them dukkannaradas. They, they, they take on your problems. I mean, if it was their problem, then fair enough. But, you know, they're taking my problem. I didn't have an issue with that. I was fine looking for another seat. But this guy, no, tell him to go. You, we can't have this here. Does it? You, are, you have to book your desks now. <laughs> Someone else takes your seat. So, what would you do then, Putta? Ah, well done, you. But people like you don't belong in schools, that's the thing. Did they teach you at math how to do that? For math? <laughs> no, of course not. For math, they teach you, right? One, two, three, four, five. I'm number five, so this is my seat. Out. That's my seat. So they teach you how to solve that problem. But here, we teach you something else. Something very different. Here we teach you that everything is the same. All things are made equal. In God's world, all things are made equal. Every man and woman, every child, every adult, every animal, every beast, they're all made equal. The flowers, the stars, the moons, the earth, everything is made equal. God loves him all the same. Have you just tuned into another channel or something? <laughs> we can today reinterpret some of those things. We're not saying they're wrong. We understand them better now. Because none of those philosophers, none of those religious leaders came into this world and taught to kill, steal, hurt other people, hmm? retaliate, fight back. They always said, no. Find your fault and fix it. Be patient. Be kind, generous, gentle with others. That's what they said. That's what they said. So as I'm saying, you know, we're all made equal. So what, what, does, it, what does it matter? Whose bottom is on that seat? A seat is there to carry the weight of a human body, isn't it? If it's doing that right now, then so what? A seat has served its purpose. But you can't think like that if you think, I am me and this is him. He's taken my seat out. That's my seat. You go find another one for yourself. You know, if you were to take, if, if you know, just imagine God existed, right? And now we are all God's children, right? And God has invented chairs for people to sit on, bodies to sit on those chairs, right? That man sat on my chair. I walk into the office and I say, out, I need to sit. Right? From my perspective, a problem has been solved. From this gentleman's perspective, a problem has been created. From God's perspective, no difference. Why? One, one problem solved, another problem created. So you give with the left hand, take with the right hand. How much have you gained? Nothing. Net result? Zero. That's why I said, you've traveled a million miles, but your displacement is zero. In our standard day-to-day -day approach to things, folks, we know we always wrong ourselves. This is wrong, this, the way that you know, we are taught to operate. There's this competition that people have with, between themselves. You know, who has to win and who has to lose? 
I know the world's resources are limited, so they have to come up with a way of, you know, fairly and squarely sharing these resources out with others. But the truth of the matter is this. There are plenty of resources if man only consumed what he needed. But today, man has gone beyond from needing to wanting. You need shelter, you need clothes, you need medicines, you need food. And then you need peace of mind. These are the basic needs. When you sacrifice your peace of mind and in, and in, and in its stead you replace it with wanting things to make you happy, now you're not, you're never, it's never enough what you have. It's never enough what you have. Because for you to survive, for you to exist, right, you only need a square foot of space on this planet. Yes or no? One foot wide. Hmm? <coughs> one square foot. One foot wide, one foot long. That's all you need. That's all the space you're going to take. Or six cubic square feet. Hmm? Six foot tall, one foot wide, one foot long, six cubic square feet. That's all you need. That's all the space you need in this world. There's space for not six, eight billion people. There's space for 80 billion people on this planet. There is. Because this planet will not produce more than it can sustain. It won't. <coughs> because that is nature. Nature does not harm itself. Ignorance and attachment are the destructive forces. Because ignorance is not natural. Desire and creed and uh, gr greed and craving, these are not natural forces. These are all mind-made forces. They are the predators of nature. These are the destructive forces of nature. And if you have them within you, you are going against God's wish. You are not in harmony with nature. If you have greed within you, if you have desire, if you have anger, ignorance and attachment, then you are not one with nature. So therefore, nature will always attempt to reject you, to expel you. That's why you're always fighting back. See? That's why you're always having to keep, you do something to keep yourself happy. Because naturally, you are not fitting for this environment. Because this earth, this good earth has been created for, for man and beast to live happily and harmoniously with each other. For flora and fauna to be equal. There's enough food for everyone, folks. If all you eat is what you need. But when, when you want to eat more than what you need, when you eat for your, to satisfy your wants, now there's never enough food. There never will be. Then there will be poverty. Then there will be people going hungry. Then people go thirsty, as it's happening now. Disease is not natural. These are all creations. A diseased mind leads to a diseased body. 
you know in in the in the scriptures in other in other places in other philosophies they'll 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 talk about this in different language they'll say pandora's box was once opened and from there sprung disease and you know decay and all those things or they'll say when when adam decided to forsake god and ate from the forbidden tree that's when everything started to go wrong yes that is when everything started to go wrong because there was no place for ignorance and attachment it is not natural ignorance is being against nature ignorance is wanting more than what the mind is here to do the mind is simply here to mind its own business this is a sight this is a sound this is a smell this is taste this is touch this is an idea that's the mind's purpose to process that to interpret that that is what the mind is for but when avarice anger greed lust desire these things creep in all rooted in ignorance and attachment when they start creeping in now these are all forces against nature these are destructive forces this is why people are striving to solve these global problems you know they get together in some symposiums they come together as communities and they try to solve global problems you know how long have they been they have they have they been trying to solve them and problems just keep on getting worse and worse apparently global temperatures have gone up by 1.5 degrees celsius recent records someone told me they they try to keep it below that but it's gone beyond that that is apparently the global target if it goes up more than by more than that in a year then there's problems there'll be tsunamis and you know destructive tidal waves and all sorts of problems glaciers melting yeah of course they'll all come they'll all come all because inside each and every one of these human beings there's there are destructive forces when we are not one with nature when we are not harmonious with nature then as we try to d- destroy nature remember what you give you get back when you try to go against nature and you try to take from nature what it's not willing to give you because it wasn't here to give you what you want it was here to give you what you need when you go ahead and get what more than what you need and ask for more than what you what you need so therefore ask for what you want now nature's going to give you one a good one and look at what's happened very soon you won't be able you won't even be able to breathe for free maybe not in your generation but in a few generations time you won't be able to breathe for free today you can't get your water for free yeah you can't get the piece of land to stand in for free you can't you can't you know you can't build a home a hut for free you need to buy that you have to work hard for that ha ah. look at where we've gotten ourselves how advanced we are huh? as a human race to stand on this good earth you have to work hard and you have to pay and you have to buy and you have to build to drink some clean water to sustain you know to to quench your thirst you have to work you have to buy you have to pay it was never meant to be like that folks 
If you had to do that, they wouldn't, the, 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 the nature wouldn't have brought you here. It is self-sustaining. Nature is always self-sustaining. And today to eat, look at all the things you've had to do. You're having to do. You have to work. You have to strive. Ex exhaust yourself. Hmm? And pay and buy. All these things you have to do today. It was not meant to be like that. If all human beings needed was what they needed, then we wouldn't be in the situation we are in today. But there's no end to this. Every day they make something new. They invent something new and they come up with some, some, something new and they say, right, this is the best thing, you got to have it. Right? The moment they say, you got to have it, now you want to have it. It's not a need, it's a want. And, and if it's on the other side of the globe, now what do you need? You need either a container or a ship to bring it to you, or you need a, a, an air freight to fly it across to you, right? That was not how it was meant to be. Wherever you were born, you had everything you need to sustain you. Look at animals. A polar bear is born into the, into the Arctic, into the Antarctic. It's there, self-sufficient, with everything it needs. It doesn't, have you ever seen a polar bear importing ice? No, go on, going online and putting an order for more ice? No, because it's born into an environment which is able to sustain itself. We humans were like that. We've corrupted the entire system. We were not meant to suffer like this. But we just couldn't get enough. Today, just think about, you know, how many things at home do you have that are not made in the country in which you live? Even the chair you're sat on is probably imported from somewhere. Or maybe the clothes that you're wearing are, is imported from somewhere. Maybe even your teeth are imported from somewhere. If it's time now for that. We've done this to ourselves. And then we try and fix the problem. We try and fix the problem by combating climate change and, you know, carbon taxes and these things and those things. All the while, the, the root of the problem keeps on growing, keeps on growing. Desire, greed, they just keep on growing. We keep on feeding that. We keep on adding fertilizer to that. And the problem just keeps on growing. What we are trying to do, we are, we are try just trying to, you know, uh, what's the word there? We're just trying to prune the branches of this ever-growing tree. We just keep on pruning the branches. But the root system, it just keeps on growing. It just keeps on growing and growing and growing. And now it's a thick, strong tree. So big, so huge that it's taking up all of the resources that this good earth has to offer.
This is what we've done to ourselves. Because we thought we just need to learn a bit of math. People lived with nature those days. Right? There are no houses left from the, uh, the olden ages because back then they just needed somewhere to get shelter. But today, that's not enough. You have to build a house that will last you 10 generations. So it was not enough for us to just live a lifetime. Hmm? Think about it, folks. You know, you build today a house that lasts, you know, 30 years, 40, 60, 70, 90 years, 100 years, 150 years, 200 years maybe. You want to build a house that lasts so long. But how long will you live? You know, you start building maybe at the age of 30, right? And 15 years from there, you pay your mortgage, building that house. By the time you've, you know, paid about half your mortgage, or maybe perhaps you've cleared your mortgage, it's time to say goodbye. And then you leave it for someone else. And by that time, the world has moved on. Your children are not happy with what you build. They think this is old-fashioned. You know what my folks were like. I don't like this. Now, you know, the world has moved on. How can I live in this slump? You thought it was a palace. How can I live in this slump? Look at it. We have to change this. Demolish the whole thing. That's what you paid your mortgage for. So that your kids could come and demolish the whole thing and start building up again. And then they do it. So for that, again, they have to import the, 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 the cement. They have to import the water. They have to import the, the gravel. They have to import the, there's the sand, everything imported. They have to import the labor. Why? Because, you know, now we don't like working hard, right? We just want to sit behind a computer and go tickety tickety talk, right? And so anyone that wishes to, people, people don't want to exert themselves. You know, they just want to sit like a pumpkin on, you know, behind a computer and just keep growing and growing and growing like pigs, right? And what they did, they just import people from, from other countries who are willing to work for, for, uh, you know, a, a, a measly wage. So, and what people do here, they just keep on eating, stuffing themselves, growing like this, sitting behind a computer. This was not how we were meant to be. And you do all that to build a house that will last for 200 years, but by the time you're, you've paid your mortgage, it's time to say goodbye, and then you pass away, your kids come in and they said, no, nah, not for us, we know to change this. And then they start the same thing over again. This is not how it was meant to be. We don't need to be like this. All this because our wants have gotten the better of us. We need to take ourselves back for, you know what I mean? We got to take a deep breath and think to ourselves, what have we done to ourselves? This is torture. We do it to ourselves. We don't need to imprison ourselves anymore. And, they, and we think it's the people in prisons who are in prisons. Look at yourself in the mirror. What do they do, people in prisons? You know, they wake up at, what, four, maybe four or five in the morning, right? Then they get washed, brush their teeth, you know, have their breakfast, which is free. Uh, then they, you know, they have to do some service, you know, clean, right? do all that. In, in their prison cells, right? Then they get, they're taken out for a bit of a walk, maybe do some gardening, whatever, to you know, go and maybe cook a meal or something, right? And then they get given lunch, which is again free. 
right? And then after that, they, you know, maybe go and read a book, just, you know, do a bit of recreation, right? And then maybe they have a talk about something, about how to develop themselves, you know, emotionally, spiritually, and so on, right? And then maybe in the evening, they get another cup of tea, and for dinner, they get some bread and some, you know, some uh, dal curry or something, whatever, right? They get a free dinner. And then after that, they say, right, time for bed. And everyone goes into their cells, they get locked in there, and then they, you know, fall asleep. Now, what about you? So they're in prison, right? You're free. Yeah? <laughs> they don't have to feed their pet. You do. They don't have to feed their children. You do. They don't have to look after their spouse. You do. They don't have to look after their jewelry. You do. They don't have to keep their home safe and lock the door at night. You do. They don't have to get on the bus, on the train, and just, you know, always be worried that someone might come and pickpocket. You do. They don't get given food that is unhealthy for them. You are. Their diet is controlled by, you know who? A professional <laughs> dietitian. Medical free. Shelter free. Food free. Clothing free. You? They don't have to walk there, walk, they wake up in the morning and, you know, iron their clothes and then put them on, right? And they don't have to go, you know, one layer, two layer, three layer, four layer. They don't even have to wear shoes. Look at you. They don't have to wear socks. They don't have to wear a coat and stifle themselves with a tie or suffocate themselves with a tie. They don't have to do that. They don't have to sit in traffic. Just ask yourself, how many hours of your life have you wasted in traffic? Hours, I mean. Did I get that wrong? Sorry, days. And they don't have to drive their vehicles, always worried someone might come and, you know, crash into them. Or people, you know, jumping ahead of, in front of them and then swearing at them. No, they, you know, they, lived in, they live in brotherhood. You should see how, how happily and, you know, by, relatively at least, you know, they, but they live very harmoniously with themselves. Seldom do they get into fights, really. But look at what you've done to yourself. You call that prison and you pay their bills as well. <laughs> yes or no? You have to work not just for yourself, but to pay their bills as well. Electricity, free. Water, free. You? All because. What do they get? Needs. What do you get? Wants. So which one's the prison? Whenever someone goes looking for something, Something more than they need.
they create a prison for themselves. Within, within those four walls, they get their needs and look, they live. Ten years ago, they went into prison. Today, they're still alive and healthy. They even get to do exercise. All overseen by a physician, by a dietitian. Huh? And if they need uh, physiotherapy, they get physiotherapy. If they need, uh, you know, whatever other therapy, they get those, those treatments. They get their medicines for free. You don't get anything for free. You even have to pay for your life insurance. <laughs> you have to pay so that when you die, then they pay again. Even that you have to pay. And for all that you have to see, <laughs> you know, just think about it, folks. You know, the, the, how pathetic that is. You live your lives trying to you know, live your lives working hard so that when you are dead, they pay you. That is what life assurance is, right? So, do you want me to say that out loud again? You live your lives, your valuable, your precious lives, these living, breathing lives you have, you live it, working hard, huh? paying someone, so that when you are dead, they pay you back. Happy now? Oh, happy cow. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, you know, please, folks, come to your senses. Don't create this unnecessary suffering for yourselves. I speak out of compassion. I assure you, please, I, I mean no insult to anyone. I, I, I just want you to realize what you're doing to yourselves. You don't need to put yourselves through this torture, through this pain, through this unnecessary suffering. You can make it so simple and easy on yourself if you can sustain yourself simply with the things you need. This is what I do as a monk. I'm happy with what I need. If ever I feel a want, I know the answer is in the Dhamma, not in the supermarket. If ever I feel I want something, the answer is in the Dhamma. It's in the Valley Madhu, not in the supermarket. Not on your way home. It is home. It is at home. The answer is at home, not on your way home. You get what I mean? But when you want something, you have to fetch it on your way home. When I want something, it's at home. The answer is at home. The answer is in the Dhamma. Whenever I want something, I'll run to my teacher. I'll run to my fellow monks, my noble friends, and they'll help me. But when you have a want, remember where that want came from. It was on TV. It was on the internet. It was on the advert. And they said, you know, sold at all good supermarkets. What supermarkets? Good supermarkets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you are a good supermarket, you have to sell this product, right? Surely. So when you want something, you have to go there. Please go home, check, you know, open your fridge and have a look in there. Is it filled with things that you need or things that you want? I, you know, I'll give you 50%. Okay, 60% things that you need. What about the rest of the 40? 
you know, really the proportions are more the other way around. But I'm just trying to be nice to you because I've been mean to you throughout this sermon today. <laughs> At least the last 10 minutes, I'm trying to be nice to you. See, today we, we are going to go an arms round. Hmm? And when we come on the arms round, you'll all get to offer something to the Swami Nase from your, from, your, from your food bowl, from your plate. Right? And, you know, in there, you'll have what we expect is not to give us the first and foremost portion, although that is what some of you choose to do. That is not what we expect. In the typical fashion of Pindapatha, or going round on arms, as the Buddhas used to do, as the monks of the day used to do, as the Arahans used to do, remember his, his father, the king, went up to him and said, Venerable Sir, what is this you are doing? Going round begging for arms? You disgrace us. And the Buddha's response was, King, Your Majesty, that is your clan. That is a clan of the kings, but this is the clan of the Buddhas. In our clan, we go begging for food. Because that is sufficient to satisfy our hunger. That's all we need. So when we come to you, you know, you feel free to put in anything, anything you don't want, put it in there. Anything you don't want, put it in there. Because if it's edible, and if it's not bad for the body, you'll take it. There are some food items that may be bad for you. Maybe you're allergic to something. I can't help it, right? That's just the way it is. But if not, if it's edible, you'll take it. It doesn't have to be the first and foremost handful, right? Because that's not typically how it's done. When you go arms rounds in, in the village, right, you just walk and then people are there. You knock, knock. You don't knock. You just stand outside and someone sees you there. Maybe it's while they're having their food. They come up to you and say, Venerable Sir, this is all I have. I mean, I'm, you know, mid-meal. Do you mind? Not at all, please. If you like to, go ahead. Then they offer the something. That is, you know, because food is what we need. We don't need the first and foremost portion of it. That's a want. We don't need it to be colored rice. We don't need it to be brown rice or red rice or biryani rice or fried rice. It doesn't need to be like that. It just needs to be something that is edible, something that can sate our hunger, something that is nourishing so that we can sustain our bodies to continue the practice and free ourselves from all wants. That is what we take food for. But I myself will admit, I'll be the first to admit, before the Dhamma healed me, I used to, I used to take great pleasure. Every weekend, you'd be, we'd go out, try out different restaurants. I, I really liked trying different things. Different restaurants. You'd go up on TripAdvisor or somewhere and look up, you know, what's the best restaurant? What's the latest in town? You know, what's, what's new? What's different? And you go and then find a new place and go there. You read the reviews and find, you know, rated, good rated, highly rated places. We speak to our friends and go and sit around the table and, you know, discuss the food as you eat it. <laughs> food is to be discussed? How disgusting. <laughs> food is to be eaten because you're hungry. That is a need. But what do you discuss? Oh, this food must have a lot of proteins, right? This must have a lot of carbohydrates. That's not what you discuss. You go, what? Oh, this is it's quite palatable, isn't it? It's, it's rather delicate. It's rather delicate, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a funny taste in the mouth. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, everyone becomes a food connoisseur. 
You, know, you might think I'm, 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 be, I'm mocking. I, I'm mocking myself. I'm mocking the person I used to be. Because I, uh, I didn't like him one bit. So I changed him. I didn't change the world, I changed him. I didn't like who I used to be. I didn't like what I used to stand for, what I used to represent. Because I represented desire, aversion and delusion. That's what I represented. I represented the Mara. Mm, I was sick and tired of that. Didn't get me anywhere. Didn't, me, didn't win me anything. Only kept me losing every single day. I lost everything. I lost my happiness. I lost my peace of mind. I lost my tranquility. I lost compassion. I lost loving kindness. I lost the ability to see that all people were one. I lost the ability to see that all were equal. Therefore, I loved some people and I didn't like other people. So, in, the, in nature, where all things are made equal, I began to distinguish things from each other. I thought these were good things, these are the bad things, these are people I like, these are people I don't like. Who gave me the right to do that? On whose account, on whose accord? What authority do I have to judge God's, God's work? What authority do I have to do that? Who do I think I am? Today I ask myself that question. Those days I used to ask, who do you think you are? Today I ask myself the question, who do I think I am? That is what I think when I go to the Valley Malu. Who do I think I am? You understand those words? It's a karma stand. Who do I think I am? And then I realize I am only a figment of my own imagination. I am a creation of my own ignorance. I am a creation of my own delusion. I am an illusion. All this is is mind and body. A mind that does not mind its own business get in, gets itself into all sorts of trouble, all sorts of problems, and creates suffering for itself. That is who I think I am. Just a bundle of suffering. So I welcome you all, folks. Come. See. Experience. Embrace. Enjoy and enlighten. You will feel the load lighten. You will feel it, I promise you. I'm going through it, that's why I'm talking to you about it. I'll speak to you firsthand. You will feel enlightened. You will feel it. You will feel the burdens disappear. You will feel the grief, the anger, the frustrations, the anxieties, the annoyances, they'll all just like be history. You'll think one day to yourself, when was the last time I got angry actually? Hmm. That day will come. When was the last time I was annoyed? Hmm. Actually, I can't remember. That day will come to you. When was the last time you found yourself upset about something? Aggravated about something? That day will come. You'll ask yourself, hmm, when did that happen? Do those things happen to people? That day will come. 
and then nothing in this world can upset you nothing in this world can bother you and you will live to help other people achieve that same state of mind that state of state of peace that state of tranquility that state of calmness and coolness and just be one with nature because when you are one with nature nature gives you everything you want or rather everything you need that is being one with nature nature will sustain you you don't have to fight for it you know that just let nature take care of you just let it do it let nature take care of you and and stop fighting for it yield to nature and nature will look after you it will but the moment you start fighting now nature thinks oh well if you want to fight your own battle then go do it why fend for yourself then it's like when we kill children at home right if you let your parents look after you they feed you they wash you they clean you they shelter you they if you're ill they look after you they carry you to the hospital right if they if they have to they'll carry you running on their two feet and they'll 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 protect you they'll guard you they'll do everything but won't the day come where you think you know what i want to become independent i'm 18 now i'm 18 now i'm an adult now i'm i'm a grown up now so i have to be independent i no longer want to be dependent on my parents i want to do what i want to do i want to do what is right by me i don't want anyone laying down the rules and i am king i and i am the ruler of the world and i am i am i am i am, I am. <laughs> and what happens when that day comes uh oh, you know what happened the rest is history <laughs> from that day on you had to feed yourself you had to wash yourself you had to clothe yourself you had to shelter yourself you had to take yourself to the hospital you had to fend yourself you had to safeguard yourself no one to ask no one to check no one to say you're right you're wrong you had to make your own decisions Remember how daunting that was having to make your own decisions? Huh? You can't see the future. Should I go this way? Should I go that way? Remember being there? How daunting that was? All all those things your parents used to do for you. All you had to do was just succumb, yield to their care, to their shelter, then to just do, you know, to say, "Yeah, Lord, you do whatever you need to me because I know you love me." but when you thought no i love myself more than my parents love me ah okay okay go try it then <laughs> you know what happened you ended up becoming parents <laughs> that's what happened in the end <laughs> right trying to draw a line in the sand for today you have the buddha puja next all in all take it while it's there most of the time people only understand the value of things when they're gone most people cry for their mothers when they pass away 
They cried for their fathers when they passed away. But while they were there, they took them for granted. Today the Dhamma is here, the Buddha, the Sangha is here, the truth is here. It would be remiss of us to take them for granted. It would be a shame, it would be a pity. So while it's there, take it. Invest a small portion of your life at least in realizing the Dhamma. At least a small portion. Because whatever you can do to free yourself, investing yourself in the Dhamma, investing the time that you have in the Dhamma, it'll reap you rewards. It'll yield you so much. Tenfold, hundredfold, a thousandfold, unimaginable rewards. That's why if you start small at least, then you will carry on on that path. Because the more you experience it, the more you enjoy it, the more you will want to do it. Remember, the first time I asked you to meditate, I only asked you to do 15 minutes. I never asked you to do any more than that. When our young Anagarika children come to the monastery, I tell them, five minutes, Buddha. Valley Manu, just five minutes. Come to the Valley Manu. Five minutes. That's all I asked them. I asked them to do that some time ago. Today I see them come and spend half an hour, one hour, two hours, three hours, some people, all day. Whenever they have nothing to do, they'll just come running to the, to the Valley Malu. And they only started doing five minutes. Because the more you do it, the more you realize how fun, how enjoyable, how, how enlightening it is. So, whatever. Just start small. Start wherever you are. Okay. Let's conclude for today then. Taking a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in the receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasikas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to Guru Swami Nuhans and our teachers as well as, as well as all the other monks resident at the monastery as well as the Anagarikas and Anagarika community attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be thereby transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them, and may, through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plain, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transmit we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. May through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. 
Let us take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers, employees and to all those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer to the Devas and Brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambuddha Sasana. Let us transfer to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may, through the power of these merits, they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer to our ancestors who have predeceased us and to all those who have been our families, friends and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara and to those who have helped, supported and assisted us along the way. Let us transfer merits to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations and may, they all, and may all those who have lost their lives in the wars be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us transfer merits to all those who lost their lives in natural calamities such as the tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides, forest fires, pandemics and so on. Reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to them and may to the power of these merits if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, redeem themselves to be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may through the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land and may by the power of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day you and i and everyone who's helped make this program a success in any way become an arahatan mahanse or an arahatan in mahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the gautama supreme buddha itself sadhu 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 and the blessings of the noble triple gem be with you all and the members of the mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you ரா பரம சுகயன் சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகயன்சுகய
ಮೋಹಗಿನಿ ತುಂಗಾನ್ಗೆ ಸೂಸಿ ಅನಂತ ಮಹಾಗುಣ ಬೆಲೆನ್ ಸಿರು ಲೋಕ ಸೀರು ಸಾತ್ವಮ ನಿಬ್ಬಾನ್ ಪರಮ ಸುಖೇನ್ ಸುಖ ತರವೆತ್ವ ಸಾಧು ಸಾಧು ಸಾಧು